Welcome to this episode of Disease Du Jour on the topic of equine muscle disorders. The Disease Du Jour podcast to you in 2020 by Merck Animal Health. Our guest for this episode is Stephanie Valbert, DVM, PhD, a diplomate of ACVIM and ACVSMR. She is the Mary Ann McPhail Dressage Chair in Equine Sports Medicine and a professor of large animal clinical sciences at Michigan State University. Thank you, Dr. Valberg, for joining us today on Disease Du Jour to talk about equine muscle disorders from a veterinarian's viewpoint. My pleasure. Well, let's just start in with what are the most common equine neuromuscular disorders that veterinarians should understand? Well, I think the one that probably everybody deals with most commonly is um, tying up or uh, potentially exertional rhabdomyolysis. And I think the thing um, I'd like to talk about a little bit is um, a diagnostic approach to those uh, muscle diseases. The thing that has uh, sort of, we have always relied on going back to the 1960s and 70s, the research showed that you could take blood samples from horses and determine whether or not they had muscle damage based on muscle enzymes. So enzymes like creatine kinase or CK and aspartate transaminase that leak out of damaged muscle cells into the bloodstream. And it's really, really useful to utilize those tests in order to try to characterize muscle diseases. And the reason for that is that many horses, um, owners will present them as uh, historically having had uh, muscle, what they think is tying up or pain and cramping after exercise. Um, but if you haven't got documentation that there was actually muscle damage during those time periods, there could be horses that are having muscle cramping and muscle uh, fasciculations. Uh, as opposed to horses that are actually tying up or have exertional rhabdomyolysis with And um, the way to be able to do that, it obviously, is during the period of time after the horse has had an episode. So usually the best time is somewhere around four to six hours, or it can be later, uh, to take a blood sample and determine whether or not you've got uh, elevations of CK and AST. Because if that's happening and you document that, then you clearly know that the diseases that you want to look at are diseases that are causing horses uh, to have exertion or rhabdomyolysis. As opposed to taking the sample when the owner is reporting the horses having clinical episodes, and then you find that the, there's never an elevation in CK and ST, it gives you a different group of muscle disorders that you think that you potentially want to investigate. So I kind of try to then, based on the clinical signs of owners are reporting, uh, horses that have exercise intolerance and they're not going forward and they're, they think they've got muscle pain, try to first categorize those exertional things as, is this an exertional myopathy that's not characterized by elevations in CK or are we really dealing with uh, exertional rhabdomyolysis that I've been able to document? And the other thing that's really important about CKs and ASTs is knowing when you took the sample relative to when the horse had the clinical signs. Because if you take it immediately, you might get some elevations in CK that don't necessarily reflect the amount of muscle damage because it's going to take four to six hours before CK will reach its peak values. And then it usually starts to come down. So if you're taking the sample 12 hours or 24 hours later, you also are oftentimes underestimating maybe the, the severity of the elevation um, in CK. So I think in doing that, Got elevations in CK and AST, you know you're dealing with exertion around myolysis, then you can start looking at the potential differential diagnoses. 
So in some cases, um, it's just an environmental or training issue. We call those sporadic cases of exertional rhabdomyolysis. There isn't any underlying you know, genetic or inherent susceptibility that the horse has. Something has just kind of happened in the environment, affected the horse's muscles. It's got muscle pain and some damage, and it needs some rest and the ability to kind of get over that. And normally for horses like that, we'll give them some time off put them out in a pasture so they can move around as much as they want to, rather than keep them confined to a stall as soon as they're comfortable to, to move around and then gradually put them back into exercise. And, you know, during that interim time, trying to investigate, were there any training issues? Um, for example, the horse just wasn't fit enough to do the amount of exercise that they were asking it to do. Do we have a good balanced diet with adequate amounts of uh, electrolytes and vitamins and minerals um, for that horse? Are we feeding excessive amounts of carbohydrate or is there a good balance of carbohydrate in the diet? And many times after a period of rest and gradual transition back, those horses with sporadic problems will just be fine. Then there are some horses that you do that and you put them back into exercise and they start doing it again and again and again. And in those cases, now we're starting to think this is a chronic form of exertion or rhabdomyolysis. What could the underlying basis for this um, be? And approach to often dependent on what breed of horse you're dealing with, because we now have some nice genetic tests that are a nice pain-free way to diagnose the underlying basis for exertional rhabdomyolysis. And um, if they are quarter horses, quarter horse related breeds, um, draft uh, horse breeds, particularly ones that are derived from the continental European breeds, some of the warm bloods, um, then we have uh, things like uh, polysaccharide storage myopathy, we can do a genetic test for type 1 PSSM and get uh, potentially an answer to why the horse is tying up. In quarter horses, we could do a genetic test for malignant hyperthermia and get it potentially an answer for why uh, horses are tying up. Um, and then we can take the appropriate steps to modify the horse's diet knowing that the horse has PSSM1. If those genetic tests are negative, then, and the horse keeps having issues with tying up, then we're often thinking about whether the horse has um, another recurrent cause of exertion rhabdomyolysis. And when I'm looking at those horses, I like to try to look at their history and their temperament and their breed and figure out what is most likely going on. So with race horses or endurance horses or warm bloods that have this sort of nervous temperament or easily excitable or really on the muscle when they work, um, those horses oftentimes are more susceptible to recurrent exertional rhabdomyolysis, a form of tying up that we think is related to a stress inducing um, the condition and, and they develop muscle disease, we think, because all of a sudden they release an excessive amount of calcium from the storage sites within the muscle cell it causes the muscles to contract and they don't relax. And then it also incites uh, enzymatic kind of destruction of, a lot of, of the muscle and they develop tying up. So if we've got that history, we've got the right breeds, we've got the right environmental circumstances and those horses, then we take an approach to, to manage RER. Um, and then there are horses um, that we have taken muscle biopsies from and looked at and, and felt like they had another form of glycogen storage disease of which we have yet to find the answer and called that PSSM2. 
Um, and there, that's a, a muscle biopsy diagnosis that uh, we make in some cases where it's an active field of investigation to try to figure out is there one muscle disease under that category of PSSM2 or are there likely several different things? And it's just a, a description histologically of this is what the glycogen looked like when we looked at it under the microscope. So it's good to be able to try to make some of those distinctions based on the history, knowing you've got exertion arabidomyolysis by measuring muscle enzymes, um, genetic testing where the breed is appropriate, then you can kind of figure out management strategies. The tougher cases to work on now are the ones, particularly warm blood horses, where owners are reporting that the horses just got exercise intolerance, reluctance to move forward, reluctance to collect, but their muscle enzymes are normal. And so trying to tell whether or not this is a muscle disease is really a big challenge because um, you don't have a nice blood test that you can rely on that will definitively say, yep, this is actually a muscle disease. And those are really challenging too because the signs that the horses show um, could be caused by many things. They could be caused by saddle fit errors that make them cranky and not wanna go forward, training issues, um, bring sour, uh, lameness, any other causes of pain that the horse might have. Um, so those cases really require an extensive investigation by um, a veterinarian to rule out the most common things first, uh, which are uh, training issues and the issues with um, saddle fit and, and lamenesses. And then when all of those things have been exhausted, one of the diagnostic uh, possibilities is, is to do a muscle biopsy and try to see if we've got evidence of muscle disease in that muscle biopsy. And in those cases, what we most commonly came up with initially was a diagnosis of type 2 PSSM in warm bloods. And with our subsequent research into that, it seems like there may be a specific underlying disorder that we've now termed uh, a myofibrillar myopathy and that term came from looking at the samples under the uh, microscope and with electron microscopy and seeing they've got uh, aggregation of proteins that are tasked with trying to keep all of the myofibrils, the contractile proteins in alignment, and that we've got some disarray of those myofibrillar proteins inside the muscle cells. So we've now got some very special stains that we can do beyond just looking at the glycogen to help try to identify that myofibrillar myopathy. And so for each one of those specific diseases now, we're trying to figure out what's the best training approach and diet approach to handle them um, separately. One of the um, re most recent investigations we've done is to see whether some of the commercial genetic tests that are offered now for type 2 PSSM and for myofibromyopathy correspond to the histological diagnosis of um, type 2 PSSM or myofibrillar myopathy. So in that study, um, what we did was to take muscle biopsies um, that had been submitted to us by and then uh, do all of the special stains that would identify myofibrillar myopathy, um, the new stains that would pick those up and do the stains that identify type 2 PSSM. And then we also then in our own lab ran the, um, looked at the genetic mutations that have been reported to um, and are now offered as the commercial genetic tests. 
so we looked at uh, 54 warm blood horses that didn't have any abnormalities in their muscle biopsies, 68 uh, warm blood horses that we had diagnosed with PSSM2 or at myofibrillar myopathy based on the muscle histopathology. And we also looked at this in Arabians because they develop a form of myofibrillar myopathy, uh, 30 healthy Arabians and 30 that we had diagnosed with PSSM2 or MPM by muscle biopsy. And when we did that and we looked at the results of the genetic tests um, in our, that we ran in our lab, we did not find uh, a correlation between having the genetic mutations um, and a diagnosis of MFM or PSSM using the method by which those diseases were discovered. Um, and then we also looked at the presence of those genetic variants in 205 uh, horses that had DNA banked in publicly available databases. And we found that um, it was just very common to find the variants P2, P3, and P4 that are offered as genetic tests for myofibromyopathy in that kind of horse population. So we didn't find with our research um, that recommend using genetic testing for PSSM2 or MFM because we didn't have a strong association between the genetic uh, variants and the um, muscle biopsy diagnosis. Okay, that's really interesting. We will make sure and put a link to that research in Equine Veterinary Journal in the article that goes with this podcast. So if you're listening to the podcast, go to equimanagement.com under disease du jour and look for this specific podcast and it'll have a link to that research if you want to read it. And it's open access. Today's Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you by Merck Animal Health, the makers of prestige vaccines, Banamine, Panicure, Regimate, Protozil, and other trusted equine health solutions. Merck Animal Health works for you and for horses. Learn more about Merck Animal Health's comprehensive portfolio of products, as well as their ongoing investment in our industry, profession, and community at MerckAnimalHealthUSA.com. So let's talk a little bit about two veterinarians, these tools that you mentioned, and, and when should they use Well, so a lot of it depends on the horse owner that you're dealing with. The genetic testing for that are offered, like the five panel tests that are offered for quarter horses that have HYPP, um, glycogen branching enzyme deficiency, which is a problem in foals, a muscle disease in foals, not adults, because it's a fatal disorder, um, PSSM1, and then a new muscle disease that we've identified called uh, myosin heavy chain myopathy. Those are all offered as a standard muscle panel by many companies now. So they're a nice way to try to sort of screen for underlying susceptibilities. The myosin heavy chain myopathy is um, a genetic mutation in myosin. And it turns out that, that genetic mutation in myosin is responsible for uh, immune-mediated myositis in quarter horses. So somehow the uh, mutation causes the immune system after certain environmental triggers to look at the fast-twitch myosin in the muscle and say, you're foreign, I'm gonna take you out. And they get all kinds of inflammatory cells in the muscle and their muscles will atrophy really rapidly within three days they can lose you know, 30, 40% of their muscle mass. Uh, 
Wow. Yeah, it's a, it's a stunning disease. And it's called a co-dominant disease because one copy of the mutation will um, provide susceptibility to that uh, disease, but two copies make them uh, even more susceptible and that make it more recurrent and make the atrophy worse. Um, the tricky part with uh, that is understanding why and when horses all of a sudden develop the atrophy. So some horses, uh, we don't know yet uh, what percentage of horses that have that genetic mutation will you know, go on to develop muscle atrophy. That's um, something that we're interested in doing some surveys to try to understand. And then the other thing that that disease does is the reason we call it a myosin heavy chain myopathy because it doesn't just show up as immune-mediated myositis. And some horses it shows up as just severe rhabdomyolysis. So severe tying up not associated with exercise. You'll just find them it occurs particularly when they're young, but it can occur at any age. They'll come in and they'll just be stiff, sore, um, moving slowly. And again, it can progress to them lying down and being unable to get up and, and can be fatal at times because of that mutation and exactly why it causes these two different forms of clinical signs. We don't know, but it's this uh, myosin heavy chain myopathy. And it's really a relief to me now that we can just do a genetic test for that and figure out whether or not it's likely. Um, about on average 10% of uh, quarter horses will have one copy of that uh, mutation, but it's more common in um, reigning horses, um, up to 20%, I think it was 18 to 20% of reigning horses might have a copy of that. So the next study that we wanna do is to um, start a survey asking people that submit the genetic test to UC Davis you know, if, what their horse's history is and try to figure out how, how frequently a horse that has the mutation actually goes on to develop clinical signs and if they know what might have predisposed horses to this. We think, for example, that strep equi, it has a lot of uh, overlap and sim similarities between the myosin and the M protein and strep equi. We think that's a, a potential trigger for this disease. We don't recommend vaccinating for strep equi if a horse is genetically susceptible to the disease. Um, and then sometimes anything that seems to stimulate the immune response. So even other, you know, pneumonia, pigeon fever, um, that can also potentially be a problem. And also we don't recommend using vaccines that seem to cause a lot of swelling and muscle damage because if you expose the immune system to that myosin, it could trigger the condition. So using intranasal vaccines wherever you can and being cautious not to, not to um, administer irritating intramuscular injections are kind of our thoughts on that. Well, that's very interesting. Um, make sure and let us know when you're doing that and we'll help spread the word through equimanagement to the veterinarians. Great. Is there any other research that you would like to talk with our veterinary audience about that either you could use their help or you would just like to pass it along of what Michigan's doing? Um, we've been doing uh, kind of the approach to doing a lot of our research lately has been to try to um, investigate the interactions between the genes that are being expressed, the proteins that are being expressed, and the kind of um, 
the happening that's going on in the muscle of horses that are susceptible to diseases. And we've worked with uh, Dr. Clara Fanger in uh, Kentucky and found some really exciting uh, findings recently in thoroughbreds with uh, recurrent exertional rhabdomyolysis, kind of confirming that the thoroughbred horses in that race training environment, um, which tends to be more of a high stress environment, the underlying thing that we see, even when they're not tying up, is that susceptible horses have differences in the genes that they're expressing and the proteins that are expressing that are affecting two main areas. One is um, the storage of calcium and the release of calcium from the sarcoplasmic reticulum. So what we think happens with RER now is that in a high stress environment, it alters the proteins that release calcium from the storage sites. And so when they get hit with a lot of stress, they're more likely to leak too much calcium um, out of those muscle cells. And that um, then the mitochondria try to take up the calcium to prevent it from overloading. And so they have uh, changes in the proteins involved in calcium release, and they have the changes involved in a number of the enzymes involved in the mitochondrial respiratory chain. And interestingly enough, we found um, when we looked at those horses that were treated with dantrium before exercise, which slows calcium release from the storage sites, those horses did not have those changes in gene expression um, that we saw in the horses that were not pre-treated before exercise. So it looks like there is um, a pretty strong component of abnormal calcium release and that um, that has a secondary consequence on some of the mitochondrial proteins. So our continuing research is to look at, are there ways we could support the mitochondria? Um, we're looking at called CoenQ10 um, that Kentucky Equine Research produces and trying to see if that has, what effects that has potentially on mitochondria, working with um, Dr. Sarah White at Texas A&M University. And we're also looking, uh, funded by the Trotting Association, we're looking at whether we're seeing the same sorts of changes in standard bred racehorses, um, and whether standard breds and thoroughbreds have the same underlying basis um, for RER. And then the other thing that we're working on with Kentucky Equine Research is developing a new product for myofibrillar myopathy. So what we have found with that same sort of integrated approach, looking at gene expression and protein expression with myofibrillar myopathy is that there appears to be a, 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 an alteration in the muscle's response to training, where you would normally see activation of genes that will turn on the muscle's ability to make specific proteins in response to training. That system doesn't seem to be working in the warm blood horses appropriately, which might be why we've got changes in the myofibrils. They're not getting strengthened to the extent that they should be with each training bout. And we also are seeing changes that suggest that there's some oxidative stress in the muscle. So we've developed um, a pellet called MFM pellet that's just become commercially available uh, through Kentucky Equine Research that has um, branched chain amino acids and N-acetylcysteine in it to provide this, the uh, cysteine-based antioxidants that they need. They seem to uh, be breaking those down uh, in a fashion that they shouldn't be. And then to provide branch chain, chain amino acids to stimulate muscle cell development. Um, they need to keep making more um, 
sarcomeres and contractile proteins to support those muscle cells. So we're excited about that. Our preliminary results look really nice. And then we're also recommending something very different than what we used to recommend in terms of exercise regimes for horses with myofibular myopathy, the warm blood horses. We're recommending that they do an exercise session that's uh, three days of work and two days off, rather than we used to say exercise horses every day. Uh, it seems like they, um, they tolerate that exercise schedule much better. So lots of warm up, long and low work with those horses. And then gradually, um, once their muscles are loosened up, doing some collection work and, um, and then kind of expecting that day two is usually the best ride you're gonna get. Um, day three is not quite as good and fluid and flowing as day two. And then you give them a couple of days off and then they'll come back and work quite well. So we're excited we've got a new approach for that because we don't find in those horses, we were recommending a low starch, high fat diet, and we didn't find that that was really benefiting them. And so now we're saying, don't get the starch too low. Um, they don't probably need a lot of extra fat and that giving them a little bit of carbohydrate might help that lack of energy and lack of willingness to move forward. As long as you've adding, adding things like the amino acid sub, uh, substitutions and um, some antioxidant support. So we're trying that coenzyme Q10 on those horses too, to provide extra antioxidant support. So that's kind of the newest, it's a big change from what we used to say, which was low starch, high fat to no, 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 <laughs> not anymore. Let's try moderate starch, only fat if the horses um, need it for weight, which they usually don't. Um, and then adding this amino acid supplement and adding more antioxidant support. Well, that's great. Is there anything else that you'd like to, to add to our veterinary audience? I know that you have always got so much going on, but it's it's wonderful to hear some of this new research and, and new management techniques that vets can share. Yeah. Um, the only other thing I would share is um, we are continuing to see an increase in horses that have uh, vitamin E deficiencies. Um, and chronically over time, when they're deficient in vitamin E, there seems to be two different things that evolve. One is the vitamin E affects the nervous system and classically you'll get equine motor neuron disease, which most vets are familiar with. But in some horses, what you see initially is just a kind of a decline in performance and a slow and gradual loss of muscle mass. And, and that seems to be more of a muscle-based issue than a nervous system-based issue. And um, we have found in, in those horses that we, we can make a diagnosis um, by looking at the mitochondria in the muscle that's just above the head of the tail. That muscle that moves the tail is a slow twitch muscle that has a lot of mitochondria. And when they have vitamin E deficient myopathy or vitamin E responsive myopathy, they will develop changes in the mitochondria that we can see in, in muscle samples from, uh, from the sacrocaudalis muscle above the tail. And the nice thing about that is if you catch it early enough, usually those horses will redevelop their muscle mass um, when they put on vitamin E, but they don't always have low vitamin E at the time that you are um, evaluating them. So they may have had vitamin E deficiency in the past, but you can't always diagnose that condition based solely on low uh, blood vitamin E. So sometimes if you're wanting to rule that out, um, we look at muscle biopsies from that particular muscle, the sacrocaudalis muscle, to 
find that vitamin E responsive myopathy. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Valbert, for You're welcome. being our guest on today's episode of Disease Du Jour. I, I always learn a lot personally, and I know our veterinarians love to hear what's coming out of your lab. Great. And we want to thank our listeners for being with us today for Disease Du Jour, and a special thanks to our 2020 sponsor, Merck Animal Health. Please visit equimanagement.com's latest Disease Du Jour episodes and take our survey so we know how to better serve you with our podcast in 2021. If you have questions or suggestions, you can also send me an email at kbrown at aimmedia.com. Disease Du Jour is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of the Equine Network. <laughs>